0: Apamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at Apamata.org.
1: Thank you. Okay, it's good to see
2: everyone and um, welcome back. This is our last class. For this series, um, and uh, I'm hoping that uh, I will also be able to answer any questions you have about anything that we've covered so far. So <clears throat> but we'll, um, we'll begin. Um, <clears throat> what, I, what I hope to do is not um, cause too many distractions with uh, uh, my papers and notes. Uh, that I want to use today. So um, I want to begin with a koan, and this is a a very, very familiar koan, but uh, presented in Guo Gu's book, and what I like about Guo Gu is that he um, always gives a little bit of background that I was not familiar with on these koans, maybe about Chinese culture or uh, about some aspect of the story that isn't included in the koan. So uh, so let let me um just read it to you and you can uh, you can see how it connects to our topic, the paticha Summa- samupada. This is Baijong and the wild fox. So some of you are familiar with this koan. Every time Baijong taught, there was an old man who followed the congregation <clears throat> to listen to Dharma talks. When the congregation dispersed, so had the old man. Unexpectedly, one day this elderly man stayed behind. So Bai approached him. Who is it that stands before me? The old man said, I'm actually not human. In the time of the ancient Buddha, Kashapa, when I was dwelling here on this very mountain, a student asked me, does a person of great practice still fall into cause and effect or not? I replied that he does not fall into cause and effect. As a consequence, I have been condemned to be a fox for 500 rebirths. I now ask you, Master, for a turning phrase so as to release me from being a wild fox. Then he asked, does a person of great practice still fall into cause and effect or not? Bai Zhang said, he is not deluded about cause and effect. At these words, the old man was greatly awakened. He bowed in reverence and said, I have now shed this fox's body behind the other side of the mountain. Please master, give me a funeral service due to a dead monk. Bai Zhang ordered the rector to pound the gavel to summon the assembly and announced to them. After we eat. We shall hold a funeral for a dead monk. The congregation was puzzled and began to discuss the matter among themselves. They went to the infirmary, but there was no one sick there. They wondered why Bai Zhang was acting like this. After their meal, Bai Zhang led the congregation to a cliff on the other side of the mountain, where he used his cane and dragged out the body of a dead fox from a crevice in the rocks. They then formally cremated the body as they would a monk's. That night, Bai Zhang ascended up to the Dharma Hall and related the full story of what had happened. Wang Bo then asked, one wrong reply and this old man was condemned to be a fox for 500 rebirths? If his reply had been correct, then what? Bai Zhang said, come here and I'll tell you. Wang Bo then went up and gave Bai Zhang a good slap in the face. Jean, clapped his hands and laughed and said, I knew the western barbarian's beard was red, but didn't know that red was the beard of the barbarian. So, <clears throat> so Wu-Man has, has a comment on this. Um, not falling into cause and effect, why was he condemned to be a wild fox? Not being deluded about cause and effect, why was he released from the fox's body? If you have the eyes of insight, then you will know why long ago on Baijiang mountain, the old man won for himself 500 lifetimes flowing with the wind. So the verse he has is not falling, not diluted, two faces of a single die. Not diluted, not falling, tens of thousands of errors. So I won't read Guo Gu's uh, comment, it's really, really uh, quite wonderful but I will um, explain a little bit. In pre-modern East Asia imagination, a fox is seen to be a shapeshifter, a trickster, a deceiver. Even though the old man's reply about karma or cause and effect was indeed true, from the Chan perspective, he was a wild fox. Why? Because he himself was deceived by the illusion of samsara and in answering his student, he deceived others. Thus, samsara continued for him, confining him for so long in suffering. So he begged Chan master Baijon YY to give him a turning phrase. This refers to words that can completely turn delusion to awakening. How? By revealing the true nature of right and wrong, falling and not falling, delusion and awakening. Baijong replied to the same question by changing only a single word from not falling to not deluding. Does great awakening rest on the distinction of these two words? No, but precisely because the old man was holding on to words so tightly, expecting Bai Zhang to give him a correct answer upon hearing such a lame one, one that completely threw him off, he experienced an awakening. In answering him, Bai Zhang shattered the old man's attachment to right and wrong, falling and not falling, delusion and awakening. So this theme of uh, cause and effect is, uh, is found throughout many uh, koans, but I like this one by John the fox, uh, and you fall into many, many lifetimes of rebirth as a fox if you misunderstand the true nature of cause and effect, and we can, uh, we can see this in a more mundane way in our daily lives. When we misunderstand the nature of cause and effect. We ourselves fall into lifetimes of delusion and confusion, right in this very same lifetime. So I want to talk a little bit today about this um, Paticca Samapada and self, a little bit about the mind-body situation, uh, a little bit about the ethical um, underpinnings of these teachings, and a little bit about their application in the heart sutras, that's what I'll be Um, talking about today. Uh, In terms of uh, um, self-construction, the Buddha understands our mm, sensations as occurring in a kind of encounter. It's an encounter between the sense organ and something in the world. So there's a kind of encounter that starts everything. That um, sense organ might be focused by attention, or it might be surprised into um, awareness, Uh, it might be looking for something, Um, but in any event, it's the encounter between a sense organ, uh, object, and it's the the sensation is actually the impact or the attention that occurs in that encounter. So uh, this is true for all living creatures, an amoeba, for example. So this then leads to perception, some perception. And perception is colored by our prior experience and our our habits of mind and our tendencies, Uh, but it's shaped. It's not something that is simply receiving what's out there in the world. Uh, It is shaped by our six sense organs, as the Buddhists understand, the five senses plus the mind is a sense organ. So there's this perception, and the perception um, provides this uh, awareness, it comes out of feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, right? So uh, from this, a consciousness is born. Um, and so uh, the construction of self is no different. So in... Um, I like to think about this in our contact with the world, but primarily through the reflections we get from our encounters with other people, uh, we form a kind of sense of self. And that sense of self is quite malleable. You can see the struggles that uh, young people have, like in junior high school, trying to form a sense of self and uh, engaged in all kinds of you know, cruel and barbaric behavior with each other to try and craft a sense of self that's a center of agency and power. So, uh, so we develop a solidified sense of who we are. Um, and so we have a lot of attributes that we apply to ourselves. Our internal voices are always telling us, you know, oh, you're so lazy or you, you, know, you don't really, you don't have any compassion or what, you know, whatever the voices inside are telling you come out of that uh, prior experience and then the sense contact. So you meet someone and they don't quite look you in the eye. So your tendencies will tell you whether you believe this means the person's untrustworthy or whether you believe the person doesn't really like you or isn't interested in you, finds you boring, or this person is preoccupied with something else, or you're just curious what's going on with this person, right? So this all comes out of um, our habituated tendencies uh, in viewing the world and viewing what we think of as our self. Um, and recently there was an article about the self as network, I think an aeon, and um, psyche. Um, so every age has a concept of mind and self that is grounded in the metaphors of the age. So the metaphor of our age is networks. So now people are beginning to write about the self as network, the mind as networks, networks of neurons, networks of associations, networks of meaning, networks of memories. So the network is kind of a potent metaphor because it talks, it's really speaking to something that's massively distributed and which in many cases doesn't even have a control center. So it's activated across the distributed, you know, system um, and and when we're talking about a network, we're talking about, as we're ta- when we're talking about any system, we're talking more about relationships and flows. So flows of energy and information and resources. So if you think of self as that kind of a network, um, then that's one way of understanding its um, mutability and its distribution and its lack of sort of a solid center. I think of, I was thinking of this, um, I was talking to the teachers about this on Friday um, about the metaphor that the Buddha uses uh, as a flame Um, and I think that's such a great one in in the sense that when you see a candle flame there's something there right but there's not it's not a thing it's um, it's a visual field there's a visual field but the but the candle flame isn't just a visual field even if you hold your hand above what looks like the flame, you can feel it, right? So the tactile field is different from the visual field that creates a flame. And, um, and so there's a kind of emptiness to it, but at the same time there's some activity, so it's really an activity more than it is some kind of thing, a uh, substantial object, um, and it's created by combustion, it's burning. So the Buddha has the famous fire sermon where he says, all is burning. He, he's talking to the um, fire worshipers. And he says, all is burning. The eye is burning. The world is burning. <clears throat> and I, I, I think in his uh, teaching, on the, in the fire sermon, he's not saying everything is being destroyed. And he's not even saying everything is impermanent. He's saying everything is... Um, combustion. Everything is uh, this activity of combustion. So so there's a kind of emptiness at the heart of it, but it's not a void kind of emptiness. We know there's, you know, a candle flame has a scent. There's a smoke that wafts up. um, uh, It goes out when the fuel is gone. And then where does the flame go? There's no substantial thing there. There's no thingness to it. So, it's a process or an activity. And I was also thinking about the ways in which a flame transforms things. It's not only that it exists there, it's also a transformational agent. So, because of its heat, because of the light, um, because of combustion and because of its composition, it it transforms the things that move through it, whether depending on whether it's large or small, and depending on what the thing is, it's passing through it. But everything um, has some response to the candle flame, right? So something like a bar of lead might seem unchanged, but it is warmed up a little bit, right? So it gets get some heat out of it. Um, uh, the darkness is is lit by that uh, combustion process. Um And there are other things which are massively transformed, a piece of paper, uh, you know, um, Dogen famously said, you know, firewood becomes ash and doesn't become firewood again. Um, So these transformations are uh, moving, not because some thing has acted on them, but because of passing through that system of combustion and that process. So, uh, so then we can think about this in terms of collaboration. When we have a single candle, it's got a certain amount of power, but it's pretty small. But when it lights other candles, it could be quite huge, right? You Take one candle, you can light a lot of candles, or you can uh, start a blaze that's quite a bit larger It has a huge amount of energy and light and heat and transformational power to it. Um, so that might be uh, the power of destruction as in a wildfire, or it might be the power of creation as in a blacksmith shop. But this metaphor seemed to me kind of interesting because of its transformational power, even though it's not a substantial thing. So, um, so in our sense of self, our thoughts, our words, and our actions are like flames themselves. So, they're not substantial in and of themselves, but they can have quite powerful effects and they can transform things uh, for better or for worse. Um, And that's, uh, and yet we can always say, well, you know, it's just words, just empty words. Words don't have any uh, power, but they actually do. So, in in the uh, course of uh, evolving as human beings, we identify um, qualities uh, of ourself um, that we might think of as like qualities of fire. So like, uh, like the Buddha says, there are grass fires, there are wood fires, there are, you know, there's electrical fires, there are f- all different kinds of fires and fires are characterized by what their, their constitution is, what's, what they're combusting. Um, so charcoal fire. Um, so, uh, so our thoughts and our words and our actions are like that. Uh, so they're not in themselves substantial, but they have powerful transformational potential. So this kind of brings us to this mind-body question, uh, where uh, we, we know now through modern medicine and through psychotherapy and through a lot of different modalities, including eastern uh, uh, eastern medicine, um, that that. When we talk about the mind body, we are talking about a field of energy and materials and information in constant interrelationship. So it is almost impossible to think about the mind distinct from the body. Uh, It is a kind of a field and that field includes mental aspects and physical aspects in intimate relationship with each other. So a good example of this is the immune system, which is very sensitive uh, to um, agents in the environment that don't belong in our system, uh, and which is also very, very sensitive to changes in our emotional state, our psychological state. Uh, so these, all of these um, systems that form up our mind-body are continuously relating with each other and they're also relating with the world. And they're also forming their impressions through sensations and perceptions about what's beneficial for us, what's not beneficial for us, what's pleasant, what's unpleasant. So because we have this uh, mind-body potential and mutual interaction, we can decide things with our mind that our body doesn't want to do. Um, you know, we may not want to go to the gym and work out, but we can decide with our minds, we're going to do this because this will make us healthier. We'll make the body healthier. Um, and the body's like, no, I just want to lie here on the sofa, relax a little bit, you know, take a little rest. Um, so, but we have this capacity for the mind and the body to influence each other uh, in really, really profound ways. So when we are experiencing, for example, joy um, or grief, uh, or stress, or satisfaction, or anger, or any of the many, many myriad things that we, uh, that we believe are sort of psychological, they're actually embodied. Trauma is embodied, and, and psychologists and psychotherapists have been learning more and more about where trauma resides in the body. So there is this sharp division, and um, dealing with uh, mental well-being doesn't necessarily remove the stresses of trauma from the body. So, this Bessel van der Kolk has written a lot about this and about the need for um, physical um, activity that can help release some of the stress in the, that's held in the body. So, um, so we we try really hard to use our minds to help our bodies be healthy, to help our relationships with others be healthy. And um, and and sometimes these things are at So sometimes we want to have a healthy relationship with somebody who's difficult for us, and so our body's reactive around the difficulty, and our mind is you know trying to form a positive relationship in the midst of the struggle with the physical reactivity. Um, And we think we can use logic to resolve some of these issues. I wanna read to you a little bit about what Joanna Macy says the Buddha taught about logic because um, he of course uh, suggested that people investigate all of his teachings for themselves and see whether they held up or not. Um, So she makes a distinction, hold on here. Um, She makes the distinction the Buddha made between, um, let's see, taka, which is just pure logic, um, distinguished from anumana, which is inferential or empirical reasoning, that is, reasoning from what your experience is, and, um, and it's seen, uh, taka is seen as both controversial and unreliable. So first of all, it derives from perception. Um, there's no self-justifying realm of pure reason aloof from or unconditioned by the sensory world. So the Buddha does this teaching about this. He says, there exists no diverse truth, which in the world are eternal, apart from perception. Having formulated theories in accordance with logic, they have arrived at the twofold categories called the true and the false. Reckonings characterized by conceptual proliferation have perception as their source. So. Consequently, he says, you know, the uh, fruits of taka, pure logic, taken independently are suspect. So we like to believe that logic is really triumphs over uh, myth-making or falsehoods or whatever. He says, even that which is well-reasoned is liable to be baseless, unfounded, and false, while that which is not well-reasoned or well-thought-out may turn out to be true Factual and not false. So, you've all had this experience in your life of, of that um, distinction. So, the views that are arrived at and defended in terms of taka alone are suspect in the Buddhist view because knowing is conditioned by habit and vested interests. As a kanda skanda, The faculty of knowing is one of the five components of human activity, along with body, sensation, perception, and volitions, and it is interdependent with these other four. So the recorded statements of the Buddha make this clear, Macy says. Here's what the Buddha said. Were a man to say, I shall show the coming, the going, the passing away, the arising, the growth, the increase or development of consciousness apart from the body, sensation, perception, and volitional formations, he would be speaking about something which does not exist. There's no pure logic. There's no pure reason. So in other words, the habits and impulses to which mental activity give rise come in turn to modify it and thereby to interpret the external world and impose fabrications upon it. We all do this without exception. So this process by which that fabrication occurs goes like this. Depending on eye and visible form arises visual consciousness. Meeting together of the three is contact because of contact arises feeling or sensation. That's Vedana. What one feels, one perceives. What one perceives, one reasons about. What one reasons about, one proliferates conceptually, what one proliferates conceptually, due to that, concepts characterized by such obsessed perceptions assail him in regard to visible form cognizable by the eye, belonging to the past, the future, and the present." So this produces this kind of proliferation. Um, and. That's why we consider that perception is really an interaction uh, with the environment, and not just the receiving of some something by a sense organ, which is tuned to re- perceive it. Um, many years ago, there was an article by Oliver Sacks about a man who regained his sight through an operation after he had lost it when he was very, very young. So uh, he. Um, became engaged and his fiancee discovered that there was an operation which could restore his sight. So his sight was restored in his mid-50s. And everybody thought, okay, the curtain is parted. Now he has visual perception, he can see. So there were enormous number of consequences out of this. First of all, he couldn't really see, even though his visual perception was working, because he couldn't distinguish the edges of things. He couldn't distinguish that something was closer and something was farther away, not because his visual apparatus couldn't do it, but because his mind couldn't construct that distinction out of what it was seeing. So for him, a set of stairs was, always remained just planes of color. And uh, and it was completely mysterious. To him, walking into a room, with every step, the furniture changed completely. He didn't have a mental model of a chair, which if you look at it this way and this way, it's still the same chair. So every time he moved through a room, every angle meant an entirely different piece of furniture. Uh, So this shows that even though it happens when we're very, very young, our vision is really a product of our um, negotiation of a relationship with the environment. So. Um, So, it's not just simply uh, the world mapping itself onto our sense perceptions. We're actively constructing, continuously constructing the visual field, and the mind has to work very hard when that hasn't become uh, habituated. So uh, it was exhausting for him. He lost his job because he had gotten a job at the YMCA as a masseur uh, because he was blind so now he wasn't blind anymore so he didn't need the job. They took away the apartment they had given him um, and they expected him to just be able to drive a car and go to a job. And this was completely out of the question. He, he just could not function in that way. Not because there was anything wrong with his visual apparatus, but because his mind could not construct the necessary structures um, that would help him navigate in the world out of what it was perceiving. So so we look at these dependencies, and they become, I think, very, very interesting. You know, without what could something happen? Without without what could something come into being? I thought this might be something fun for us to play with a little bit uh, in, uh, in a little bit of an activity, if you're up for that, if you guys game for that, a little bit of an activity, just exploring this. Okay, so forgive me. Okay, so you need something to write with, and we're um, we're seeking causation now. So you want to identify uh, a current challenge or difficulty in your present life. Just a a challenge or difficulty in your present life. If you have no difficulties, congratulations, maybe you're already a Buddha. Um, If so, uh, you may recall a recent example from the past. Just make a little note describing it, just so you'll recall what it is. A challenge or a difficulty.
1: Okay, so now
2: we're going to try thinking like a Buddha. And the second part of this is what is this challenge or difficulty dependent on? Thinking of what specifically is necessary for its existence. The test is to discover without what, this would not exist. And there's no copping out and saying everything else. We're looking for immediate and specific dependencies. Identify at least one causal factor. This is the first link. Dependent upon what
1: does this exist? So this is the first link.
2: What does this factor depend on? This is question number three. Without what would it cease to exist or not arise at all?
1: Let's call this the second link.
2: What does this factor depend on? Without what, would it cease to exist or not arise at all? Let's take it just one final step. Without what, would this second link not exist? What does it
1: depend on?
2: Would you repeat that, Peg? Without what, would this second link not exist? What does it depend on? So before we go into some um, breakout rooms, probably groups of three, um, I'm gonna give you a bonus question. And it's just for your own reflection. And it is this, were the factors you identified nouns persons, places, or things, were they verbs, processes, activities, emotions, phenomenal states of being, or adverbs, ways of being, thinking, relating, and doing, the factors you identified, were they nouns, were they verbs, or were they adverbs?
1: Just curious. (laughs) And the challenge itself, was it a noun, a verb, or an adverb? Okay.
2: So let's um, have groups of three for 20 minutes. Can you set that up, Kim?
1: Welcome back. Some folks are still returning.
2: Well, I'm very curious what you were able to discover in this little bit of an investigation. Uh, what uh, and in your conversations with each other, if maybe someone in your groups, you know, uh, noticed something uh, or observed something uh, about your situation that. Uh, that expanded your thinking about it or whether you had another thought as you were talking to folks um, about it. So I'm curious to hear what your experience is and I'm going to just my view so I can see if people have their hands up. Uh, so as you know, you can uh, Or just raise your hand.
1: Yeah, Joan. I think you can unmute yourself. There you
3: go. One thing we decided was it was really valuable to have a friend to talk to about difficult things. And that's one of the best things about our group gatherings. Hmm. So you
2: found that helpful?
3: Yes. And I always do in in, in our groups that that's one of the real ble- blessings and pleasures is sharing with someone. Yeah.
2: yeah. See, at the very least you realize you're not alone in it. Yeah. And we compared notes
3: because my problem is an extremely big one with my son right now where we're not talking to each other. He won't, won't, let, he won't answer my calls or anything. And finally, what I've decided to do is talk to a counselor so I can get something figured out within myself. Hmm. And I don't expect, I don't plan to let this go on forever. Yeah. If somehow I want him to know that we don't have that long to live, that we can go on this way. But right now that's where we are.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, um, that suggests some action is needed, right? Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. So I've already made arrangements to talk to a counselor that's available here where I live.
2: Good. Setting up the causes and conditions for a different future. Mm And the other thing that I
3: observed as I was looking at this was that uh, in all this discussion and problem, I haven't been in the present moment. I've been going back and forth about who was wrong, who was right. You know, ego, there's a lot of ego involved.
2: Yeah, it really shapes our perceptions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're surprised, you know, when we explain something to to another person, that their perception is quite different. because we think that that's the only way to see it. So we think anybody who looks at the situation will see the same thing worse we'll see.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Darcy, we have something to say, too.
4: Darcy? Not really, but Joan, it was so good to be with you. <laughs> Um, I'm looking forward to hearing what some of the other people had to say. I honestly am not sure that I understood this exercise well. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So it's
2: it's using this sort of method of the Buddha. Say, what's
3: you know, what's holding this in place?
2: What's holding this difficulty in place? What is it dependent on? What what was the arising factor? Um, That which it couldn't
4: exist. I think what I did at first was I started thinking what caused the problem, you know, with your first question, depending on what does this exist? And I started listing what I think caused it. And then I realized, okay, she's not really asking that. She's asking, If it hadn't have been this or this, it wouldn't have occurred at all. And so I went to that. So I think I understood that one, but then the next one was, what does this depend on? I didn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't figure out where I was supposed to go from there. And then number four, I was completely lost. Anyway. Looking for a chain of
2: causation, basically. Um, So I'm like, oh, you know, um death is dependent on birth. Without birth you don't get death. And with birth, inevitably you get death. I mean those things are linked to each other. There's a link there. the a relational link. So um and so then he worked backwards from there. So without what do you not get birth? Well some um, consciousness right so he just worked backwards from there to see what is necessary cause or condition for something profound. not so much the cause of it so you know we talked about this when we talked about um, cause of death might be falling off a cliff or being murdered or poisoned or you know any number of things being in a car accident um, but um the inevitability of, of birth and death being linked that, uh, you might or might not die by falling off a cliff, but you inevitably will die if you're born. Anything that's born will die. So that's how the Buddha was thinking about it. What is it? What is the condition without which this doesn't happen? Death doesn't happen in the absence of birth, right?
4: So uh, it, I ended up with these really global concepts, like you know the the relationship of the Earth to the sun and 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 climate change, and I mean it just it went it went back really quickly. <laughs> so, but
2: yeah, well, this is uh, you know Tichnor Hans' exercise of uh, you know thinking about a piece of paper and then what what's required to bring that piece of paper into being. Um, you need sunlight, you need, uh, you know, uh, the seed of a tree, you need favorable conditions for the tree, you, need, you know, it, you need it to be selected by a woodcutter and then, you know, it needs to be processed and there are always, in it, you know, and then that involves transport and so that's trucks and drivers and and food for the trucks and the drivers and mills and, you know, so it's really um, inevitably, and this is great because this just sort kind of segues into the next part of this, which is the way in which we very quickly conflate causes and conditions in the way that the Buddha described them and um, this concept of interdependence. So, uh, Analayo has an article where he talks about this. I'm not actually going to send it to you because it's, a, it's more of a, uh, he's picking a scholarly fight with another. Uh, You know, sort of article. And, but he makes some good points in it, I think, um, which are that often, um, especially in the Mahayana tradition, there's a kind of conflation between interdependence and this causal chain that the Buddha um, taught. And it's really important to make that distinction because the Buddha was talking about specific causes and conditions for any piece of suffering. Whereas interdependence is a more global concept, has to do with everything being related to everything else. So when you're looking at causes and conditions and you are interested in dismantling the causes and conditions that create suffering so that you can you can offer liberation, it doesn't do you any good to say everything's connected to everything else. Um, and in fact, that can lead to a kind of moral stasis, right? That everything is the way it is because of everything else. So there's nothing to be done about it. Um, and that's problematic. Um, we appreciate in the Mahayana that when we trace out causes and conditions, you know, just exactly the way Darcy was talking about, we trace them out, ultimately, everything is implicated. But um, we have to be very, very careful that we make a distinction between those two very different concepts. So the concept of causes and conditions talking about causality, interdependence is talking about relationality. So, um, it's a different kind of um, model, I think, or different kind of concept uh, that we sometimes um, collapse together with uh, this teaching of causality of the Buddhas. So, um, which um, Analeo and I think Joanna Macy have a slightly different view of this. So, Analeo thinks that. The Buddha's teachings on Paticca Samuppada are only about the causes and conditions for suffering. That was no doubt his main concern. That was his big question. So so, uh, Macy says, on the other hand, that dependent origination, Paticca Samuppada, is shot through all of the Buddha's teachings and suffering is his case example to explain it, um, because everybody's familiar with suffering. So there's two different perspectives, and I don't necessarily think that one is right and one is wrong. It's just two different ways of viewing these teachings. So, okay, Gail. Hi, Peg. Hello,
0: everybody. This was... um... This was a tough one for me, uh, just like Darcy, trying to figure out what was being asked. And I wanted to go to some more complicated challenge, but I ended up going to something very simple for me. And uh, what that was for me was hip. My my hip went out, it hurt, it hurt. And then when you asked what is the, um, without which this hip wouldn't be hurting, I thought, well, if I didn't have a body my my hip wouldn't be hurting. (laughs) And um, and so I went to this, you know, I went to these very basic spots and then, well, what is it that's, you know, without which, you know, the body wouldn't exist. And then I came to birth, just like you were talking about. And then taking the one last thing, that was kind of interesting to me because okay, so what is it that's causing birth? And then I was floundering around and I was thinking something like, well, the desire to be or, and then I finally just came back. Well, there was desire because my parents apparently desired (laughs) to have sex and to create me, (laughs) you know? Um, But it was interesting to me because when I looked at the list you know the dependent origination list that the Buddhas laid out it seemed to be tracing backwards the beginning of that trace backwards mm-hmm. and um, it, it could have been very complicated but I appreciate it. it seems like the Buddha is is just saying the very simple you know way to look at it you know without getting all caught up in story and conditioning and he said, and she said, and you know. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, it's just these conditional relationships.
0: Yeah, it, 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 and yet everything seems to, to come out of that in some weird you know, way. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the very beginning. This is I've wanted to ask since the beginning of the class because the first thing that the Buddha, um, says is that everything, the first thing is ignorance.
2: It's, right? not, it's not the first thing. It's not. Um, and Sometimes it's ordered in a different order in, in different places in his teaching. But the order of it is not the important thing. It is not a linear chain. We tend to a linear chain, but it's not. Even when we represent it as a circle, we're representing it as this linear chain. Right? Right. And it's, it doesn't work like that.
0: Yeah.
2: It's without what, without what conditions. So we might say, for, you know, dependent on what, is there fire, combustible materials, um, ignition, um, and we perceive and name that. Mm-hmm. So it's without which can this not come together, can't arise.
0: Right. And when I hear the word, ignorance even. And this seems to, it seems to permeate everything, you know what I mean? In other words, it's, it's present in every single thing that looks like it's linear. And, and I think to myself, another word I think of, and I don't know if this is wrong or not, but I, in my own life, I think of it as innocence, you know, it it sort of, maybe, although that can be a pretty
2: charged term for people. Um, So I tend not to use it that way. But I would say, Unknowing. So,
0: yeah. yeah,
2: before knowing happens, it's not because it's not that you're stupid. It's not that you're not getting it. Um, it's before anything arises, um, and everything returns to that, right? To that unknowing, or you know, in uh, other terms, we could call it the unborn, the, uncre- the unconstructed. The unfabricated um, everything comes out of that necessarily by definition you know what precedes something that's formed the formless right so um so it's that um, and this is why the teaching on the hearts of church i'll talk about in a couple of minutes um, is so um, profound
0: right and even in my own life it, I, I like the word uh, uh, unknowing you know it seems like everything that, let's say, happens in the way of suffering is because of some un, something that's unconscious or unknown or unknown to yeah. me. You, you know what I mean? It's something I'm not conscious of and- um, Or, no.
2: or yeah. your awareness somehow. So um, yeah, it doesn't mean it's not having effects. Yeah. So Bonnie, did you have something you wanted to?
0: Sure, I'll make it quick. Um, Our discussion ended up around my process with um, Glenn and Kim came back to joy and happiness. And at the very end of our time together, they both expressed joy at uh, what my decision will be or how I will pursue um, experiencing joy and happiness in my life. And it was lovely. So I just wanted to say thank you very much to both of them. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah we're, we're continually putting in place the causes and conditions for the next moment and for the future. And we have choices about that. That's what, um, you know, briefly, I'll say just a, a few words about um, ethics because one of the issues around interdependence is it could be quite possible for people to enter a kind of moral stasis where everything's happening. You know, like everything's interdependent, so I don't have any actual responsibility. There's no moral imperative or moral urgency for me to act in a good way. Um, and I think it's the opposite, really, uh, but, um, but it's dangerous um, to depend on interdependence. So the Buddha was very concerned with what creates the causes and conditions for a harmonious world. The precepts came out of that inquiry, and they, are, they express the relationality we have with all existence, not, not just with other people, but with all existence. And Between the precepts and the paramitas, which are the practices of perfection, you have a pretty good, um, I'd say, uh, formula or prescription for creating the causes and conditions for harmonious well-being in the world, um, between you and others. And so this is why it's important to teach, if you're going to teach interdependence as we do in the Mahayana, it's very important to stress the significance of the precepts and the paramitas so that people understand there is an ethical foundation there. We aren't just sitting around saying everything is related to everything else. So um, very briefly, um, I wanted to say a little something about the Heart Sutra, which I promised to do. Um, and uh, and it's sort of, sort of, shaped by some new uh, scholarship that came out around the heart sutra and um the causes and effects which we sometimes read in this sort of nihilistic way you know that the heart Sutra is saying no nose no tongue no body no mind no sight no sound no smell no taste no touch no object of mind you know it's the dismantling looks like the dismantling of all of the teachings Of the Buddha, a kind of negation. But I, and I think, you know, traditionally we've said, well, this proves the emptiness of everything. It's not about the nihilism, it's really about the emptiness of things and the impossibility of pinning them down. And um, the new scholarship is very interesting because this is from an article called Losing Ourselves in the Heart Sutra, which is um, looking at the translation. So, It was commonly believed until very, very recently that the Heart Sutra was originally composed in in, um, Sanskrit and was then translated into Chinese. And we have the Chinese remnant of it, but we don't have the original Sanskrit. Um, But it turns out uh, scholars who have really looked closely done close textual analysis of it, that it was originally composed in Chinese and then um, translated into Sanskrit. So back translated, so, which gave it some legitimacy and, some, and authorized it in a certain way. It is um, word for word. Pieces of it are taken out of the larger Prajnaparamita literature, Mahayana literature. So in, this, in the Heart Sutra, there's a, um, a place, a particular place, where um, there's an interpretation of a five-character uh, Chinese word in the Heart Sutra. And, um, and it appears in the Sanskrit as pativat," apra, apra because there is no attainment. Um, but uh, when he compared it with the surviving perfection of wisdom texts, this scholar, Shi Wingfeng, found that the original term was actually uh, anyupalam by, by yogina or by means of the yoga of non apprehension. So what does this mean to you and me, it basically means that instead of negating everything and saying um, there's no suffering no accumulating no extinction and no way no understanding and no attaining. um, uh, And that that modifies all of what came before instead. It actually says there's no suffering, no accumulating, no extinction and no way and no understanding and no attaining because of practicing the yoga of non apprehension. So what the um, new translation implies is that through this um, withdrawing attention away from the senses, we enter a state in which um, because we're not attending to them, they disappear. It's not the negation of them. It's and the Buddha talked often about um, in seclusion, in seclusion, and what he meant was not go off and sit in the woods. he meant in secluding ourselves uh, from sense um, perception, sense sense um, appetites. So I thought this was very interesting because it means, um, In this context, he says, emptiness means in the state of absence in which all sense experience has ceased, but the practitioner remains conscious. This is a state of like samadhi. The state of absence can be attained through a particular practice, namely the yoga of non apprehension. So the sutra declares that if we persist in this practice, we will experience a cessation of sense experience, at which point for us, there will be no sense experience of any kind. In other words, he says the Heart Sutra does not deny the existence of things as such. Rather, it states a truism about having lost ourselves in meditation so that we no longer experience form or self or world. However, this meaning was lost. Um, So so instead, it was treated as, uh, the Heart Sutra was treated as um, pointing to the non-existence of things. So anyway, we're at the end of our time but I wanted to just convey that to you um, as a a new reading for the Heart Sutra. Uh, And you can think about whether that has some some value for your ways of thinking about it. And I can send this article around so you can read it uh, and see what the, it's a scholarly argument in a way, and that's talking about a fine point of translation. But as we know in Buddhism, these fine points of translation can often carry pivotal meanings. That shift something for us, so we understand something more deeply. So, um, so anyway, um, that is um, uh, a, a different way of understanding causes and conditions. It's not the denial of causes and conditions; it's that all of that falls away when our meditation practice drops us so deeply into a state of um, of non attention. Um, then you you just lose sense perception, but you're still conscious. So um, okay. So I hate to keep you over time. I had a whole other section of this talk about vow, but I out the vow part Since vow is very personal. Um, it's been really a pleasure uh, having a chance to dive into this material with you. And I do hope you get a chance to read Joanna Macy. I'm stunned by the beauty of her sentences and by how profound the work is in this book. Um, and I love her other books, but they're much more addressed to like just a general audience, not a Buddhist audience. And this mutual causality is that's the pivot of everything. So. So I hope you get a chance to look at it and uh, and enjoy it as I do. I keep going back to it because I enjoy it so much. Um, okay, Joel. Uh, the,
1: this may not be able to be answered
0: right now, but uh, I get what you're saying about the, the effects of that translation on the things related to the sense faculties. But what about the part about there's no ignorance or extinction of ignorance? There's Same. no old age and death. Which seems, does, same. Uh, how, how does that apply?
2: It's the same thing. When we withdraw our, our attention, right, those things disappear. They're, they're, they're constructs that, mm-hmm. we're, that we're no longer participating in, I'd say.
1: OK. I'm going to have to think about that one. <laughs>
2: I think he's really talking about a deep state of samadhi. Um, where you're awake and alert, um, but you're in such a deep meditative state that everything else has fallen away.
1: So is that where there's no experiencer that we've talked about before?
2: Right, no I, no, you know, um, not because they've they've disappeared off the face of the earth, but because they're no longer part of our conscious sphere, our awareness. So it's just something to think about. You may agree or disagree with that reading of the Heart Sutra, right? Um, But it it really was provocative to me. I really thought, oh, that would change everything then. So I'll send around this article and, and you can take a look for yourself and make your own investigation. See if it matches your experience. Yeah, okay, all right. Well, have a wonderful week. It's been just a pleasure um, sharing with you and and hearing your experiences and the activities that we've done together. And I, I hope you'll continue your investigation of this profound teaching. It's quite amazing.